Welcome to The Wrap Up, a weekly podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. And joining me is my co-host, Daniel Goldblatt, assistant managing editor. Good hey, to Daniel. see you again this week, Sharon. How's it going? Good. Long time no speak. <laughs> <laughs> really long time no see. It's been like eight weeks, but a lot has happened. I feel like actually we're coming up on three months of quarantine. Three months, yeah. Three months. Let's just say it out loud. So what has <laughs> happened in this week, month, day, whatever it is we got going on? This week, this week, stuff is happening. The movie theater business is still in turmoil. And one report this week said that Amazon is looking at buying AMC, the largest theater chain in the country. Is this a smart move for the retail giant? Is this good for moviegoers? Uh, we will discuss this with Raps film reporter Trey Williams and Bruce Nash, who is the founder of NumbersTheNumbers.com. Then early May is usually the biggest time of year for the television industry, but the coronavirus pandemic has laid waste to the advertising upfronts and left the upcoming fall season in limbo. How will the industry adjust? The Raps TV reporters Tim Basinger and Jenny Moss will break it down for us. But first, Sharon, let's get into some headlines. So here's a quote. Uh, I attribute everything that has gone wrong to the coronavirus. Now, that might sound like something Donald Trump might say, but instead that's Quibi's co-founder Jeffrey Katzenberg talking to the New York Times this week, discussing the streamers, shall we say, less than stellar start. Katzenberg painted a bleak picture about the company's subscriber numbers, saying, quote, is it the avalanche of people that we wanted and were going for out of the launch? The answer is no. It is not up to what we wanted. It's not close to what we wanted. End quote. For me, it's a little refreshing to hear such honesty out of Katzenberg. And I know personally, I was never really all that interested in Quibi, but I kind of feel like he has a point about the coronavirus. Do you agree? Well, look, there's a <laughs> lot of people who were naysaying and predicting the demise of Quibi before it launched. Remember, this is a project for short form video aimed at the teenage and slightly above audience for their for the age of the cell phone for their cell phone started by Jeffrey, a veteran Hollywood mogul in collaboration with Meg Whitman, the former CEO of eBay and former governor, uh, a candidate, et cetera, et cetera. But basically it comes out of Silicon Valley and the two of them and their $1.8 billion went ahead and built this very ambitious play. So here's reality. Everybody in town who I talked to thought that it was going to be a really bad idea to older people from a different generation trying to create a product for young people competing with free YouTube. We've talked about it on the show before. Then we talked to um, Jeffrey, we're gonna call him Jeffrey because we do call him Jeffrey, <laughs> uh, ahead of the launch and asked him, was he thinking of putting the launch off? And he said, no, he wasn't. And there were people out there who said, look, if you ever are going to have a shot at launching this successfully, you, uh, when everybody is locked in their homes, can't really work and looking for new forms of entertainment, you probably got a better shot at it right now than any other time. So you could really play this either way. And they made the decision to go ahead and not to wait. There were things that they couldn't do, like they couldn't have this huge uh, launch party Premier, they were yeah. going to have with all of these um, stars who had made shows, uh, shows for the platform 
who they had intended to create all of this free media, user-generated content that was going to go out on all of these social platforms and create this avalanche of momentum, of excitement. And they had been spending a lot of money, although it's of note that Jeffrey said to the New York Times they were pulling way back on this $500 million advertising budget because they are clearly, they, by the way, they also let go their CMO within two weeks of launch. But let's just look at the numbers for one second. Quibi now has about three and a half, 3.7 million people who downloaded it. And, but, and of that, about 1.3 million active users. That's what Jeffrey told the New York Times. What they hadn't said before was what they were really going for. Like we had asked that a lot of times ahead of launch. It wasn't really clear. How do you define success? What are you trying to achieve? Globally speaking, I believe that they were somewhere between 15 and 25 million was what they wanted to have in the first period of time, maybe the first 12 months. Not to forget that none of these people are paying for it in the first nine Not yet, days. Yeah. So... Um, I don't know if it's too soon. I'm not going to say that this is stillborn, but if you look at where Quibi stands now on the most downloaded apps, it's down like below like 124th most popular app. And that's not, that's a very hard trough to climb out of. So we, we will see. And, you know, there's, you're never going to know whether this would have been a, a smashing success had it launched not during coronavirus. And in fairness, also, it's not aimed at me and it's not aimed at you. So. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's interesting because we've talked before about, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, the shutdown, all the situations that have been created by this have benefited some people. Netflix has seen big numbers. I think, you know, we have Peacock coming up. The at-home viewer who is looking for content, as you said, is, you know, looking for more options and, and it's time, you know, people are running out of things to watch because we're all just home all day. But on your phone, that 10 minute thing, it was designed to be for people kind of on the go. And no, one, no one's going anywhere. There's nowhere no to go. Anywhere. So now they've, now they've adjusted it. And for the iPhone Yes, they're going to allow people to stream to their television. So they're, gonna, they're opening yeah. that up. It's a smart move, I think. But it will be interesting move. and very really, necessary. Okay, but let's just be honest. What you really need if you're going to launch a new product that you want people to adopt is you need stuff they need to watch, stuff they absolutely can't live without. And so what you what you hope if you're programming for this, and Jeffrey's on the programming side, is you hope for something that's going to catch on. If you're launching with 100 shows and you know not all of them are going to be hits, what you want is something like a Tiger King. Something It could be stupid. but you Apple want had the morning show. Go. Apple put a lot of money behind launching the morning show. They, they also yeah. had two big stars and more than two big stars, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the morning show is a great comp, honestly, Dan, because I don't think that took off. I don't, I think it did no, I don't, think, I don't think it was right. as – it wasn't very – I didn't think it was all that good, but it would certainly brought eyeballs, I think. Who didn't want to see Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell in this big Apple show? I think, you know, it at least had people talking and at least had people – you know, interested in checking out the platform. A little I, bit. I, Every time I can't I name a Quibi Twitter, show. You can, I can't name a Quibi show either. That's a really not a good thing. Even, hello, Kat. Even though, we, we, even though we're not the target audience, you know, my kids should be telling me about some Quibi show and I'm not hearing them talk about it. That is obviously worrying. I'll say two things about Jeffrey. 
and you're you're uh, hailing his honesty. I think he was right to come forward and sort of you know burst the bubble and stop trying to uh, put a, a, a happy gloss on on what's clearly not a great situation. But then at the end of the interview, he kind of lost his temper when um, the reporter asked him about how he felt and compared to YouTube or to, or to TikTok, which is which is a viral hit and which is getting wild adoption. And it's user-generated content, and it's super, super short. I don't need to tell you what TikTok is. We should probably talk about it on this on this podcast next week or the week after, because there's all these dance challenges that people are taking, and it's kind of hilarious. But he really lo- he like he lost it. He was like, "Why are you comparing apples to submarines? That's ridiculous." Well, that's what it is that you need to have is some kind of viral hook. And and for and on, on TikTok, it isn't even the people; it's the dance thing that's getting everybody to participate and feel like they need to be part of it. So, um, guess what? It's hard to do what they're trying to do, and I still hope for the best for them because there's a lot of content creators who would have an outlet and a place to, you know, be creating for in different lengths and different formats if Quibi were to work. So there we go. All right, moving on. A lighter topic. <laughs> Jonah Hill, according to The Wrap, is the new king of profanity. Yes, you heard right. The folks over at Buzz Bingo analyzed 3,500 film scripts, no less, and determined that the Superbad star has cursed 376 times in his on-screen career. Leonardo DiCaprio comes in second at 361 times, working with Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino will do that for you. And the legendary Samuel Jackson came in third with 301. We wrote a story about it. Jonah Hill loved it. It's quite an achievement, you got have to admit, don't you think, Daniel? Yeah, Jonah Hill was very proud of it. He shared our story on his Instagram page, he and it did. had something like 170,000 plus likes and a couple thousand comments. A lot of famous people congratulated mm-hmm. him. Uh, Seth Rogen weighed in. Um, uh, Adam Levine commented. You know, a lot of people. Uh, he was very gracious. He he captioned the post. He said, so many people to thank. Martin Scorsese, thanks for pushing me over the edge. And of course, the great Samuel L. Jackson humbled. And he he did joke. He's like, I wonder what team of scientists cracked this one. Um, I know he is the king and the numbers back it up. But for me, I mean, when I think profanity on screen, it's Samuel L., right? Like he, to me, will always be my king. He's the <laughs> guy I most... Makes on a plane. He, He's the guy I most want to hear curse in my face if I could pick someone. Um, you know, the F-bomb doesn't sound any better than coming out of Samuel L. Jackson. Sorry, Jonah, no offense. I expect Samuel L. to regain his crown or at least make a run for it as soon as he can. I think that's uh, fair. And it's pro- if Quentin writes another role that he could play and he can kind of, you know, break that record and re- in, uh, at a record pace. Yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. Mm-hmm. All right. Finally, this week, uh, the citizens of Los Angeles, Sharon and myself included, lost their minds briefly this week after the public health director, Barbara Ferrer, came out and said with all certainty that the stay at home orders that technically expire uh, this coming Friday would be extended for three months. Now, that's not quite what she meant. And L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti had to you know, do a little cleanup. He clarified later that he expected the stay-at-home order to be gradually relaxed over time. And already this week, several more businesses are starting to open up. They've now made masks completely mandatory for anyone going out in public. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Sharon, I know this is a topic that you feel very it's passionate annoying. about. What it's did this annoying. week do for you? you? You got very frustrated. 
Well, when she, so the, the, this public health official, Barbara Ferrer, was talking to no less than the LA County Board of Supervisors, which runs the entire LA County, where only about 12 million people live, so no biggie. And it was being live streamed. And so the headline came out, we jumped on it, everybody jumped on it. And before you turn around, the entire, there's like trending topics on Twitter, three more months, and people like, say, myself, standing back and saying, oh, the plans that we were thinking about making for perhaps reconvening, you know, things that we've canceled, conferences, meetings, whatever, uh, I guess that's not going to happen. But also it didn't make any sense because we all knew at the same time this was going on, Gavin Newsom was literally giving his daily live stream public briefing where he's talking about the protocols for in-restaurant dining under, you know, the the... Uh, social distancing rules. So it was really kind of odd. And then it was also happened to be the day before they were opening the beaches in LA County. Now it's, it's, it's uh, limited opening the beaches and you can't, although I will tell you, I was on the beach yesterday in Venice walking on the beach and you're supposed to not to the new protocols say that the beaches are open you can go in the water, but as soon as you come out, you have to put on a mask and you can't sit on the sand and you can't play volleyball. It just sounds like a total laugh riot to go to the beach. But in fact, in reality, the people were there were people sitting on the beach. There were people who were walking, talking without masks. I didn't see. There were lots of surfers on the beach yesterday. There was a bunch of waves. It was a nice day in the early evening. And people were surfing and they were not throwing a mask on as soon as they got off the sand. And there weren't any law enforcement there to kind of, you know, yell at people either. So, I mean, I think there has to be some kind of balance here between the realism. And I think what this woman was trying to say is, we're not ready to go back to life as normal, which is a great big duh. But what she did say, quote unquote, is that the stay-at-home order is going to stay in place. And she did say that, quote, with all certainty. So obviously everybody seized on it. And as a result, Eric Garcetti got to go on CNN and Good Morning America and countless other public forums where he got to look like the man in charge. So that was nice for Eric Garcetti. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing, you know, to agree or disagree with the orders and the decisions. It's another thing to not understand them. And the fact that these people <laughs> can't can't get on the same page is very frustrating. You know, you and I right, differ we should a little say, bit sometimes. We do differ and we have differed, but also we should say LA County is not the same as the, as the city of LA. Right. So the mayor runs the city, the board of supervisors runs the county. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's okay if they want to be cautious. I think, you know, extending it for months at a time probably doesn't make any sense because things are changing week to week. So I think, you know, Garcetti made the point that, you know, we're basically saying three months is a guess you know, about the long-term view, but each week we're going to be sort of reassessing and seeing where we are. And I think that's the smart way to play it, you know, as they start to hopefully get more testing. And we had a big story uh, in the last day or two, which I suggest people check out about what uh, California is doing to get contact tracers into place. Uh, I think it's still a little bit before it becomes, you know, a really viable option. I think we need to get the new cases down to a lower level for contact tracers to be able to work. It's just too many positive cases right now, but I think that's another interesting development we'll see soon. Um, so hopefully we're moving I, I, towards I, I, a place I where... That. I don't think we know that. I don't think we know that it's too many cases. LA, uh, Los Angeles and California in general has a very manageable caseload. We, we have not overwhelmed the hospitals at all since we've started this, and the case numbers are not going up. The case numbers are basically what's frustrating about this. If you live in California, having been under quarantine for two 
and a half plus months now is that we've successfully flattened the curve, but it's not definitively, the line's not definitively going down. It's just yeah, it's plateauing. Uh, more it's so, pretty plateauing. It's pretty plateauing. It's plateauing. <laughs> You know, I feel like if so, I feel like if someone had written that in a headline, you would have. Uh, I would have gone. You would have. You would have, I gone, would have nuts. gone pretty, pretty plateauing. Plateau, yeah. All right. Okay. As always, we like to end this segment with a little bit we call "Wax On, Wax Off," where we allow Sharon Waxman, our editor in chief, CEO, a waxer in chief, waxer in chief, to discuss go. one topic she is particularly into this week her wax on, and one thing that really grinds her gears, if I can steal a quote from Family Guy. Uh, Sharon, take it away. <laughs> okay. This week I have one of each. So I have to tell you all that listening to the Supreme Court live was fantastic. Oh. So, yes, last week I was excited about the fact that we were going to be able to listen to the Supreme Court arguments live because they can't do them in person. So for the first time in the history of the Supreme Court and very late in the day, if you ask me, we as taxpaying voting citizens are, were able to hear the live arguments being made on, as it happened this week, very significant cases, including three uh, this week about whether uh, Donald Trump's going to have to hand, allow his tax returns and financial records to be handed over to various congressional investigators uh, or the district attorney in New York. It's three different cases. Contrary to those who might think that because it's the Supreme Court and super smart legal eagles and, of course, the judges themselves asking questions that you can't understand it. It's not the case at all. It was totally understandable arguments. They were not arguing legal minutiae. They were talking about the branches of government and the, and the balance of powers. And they were trying to figure out, essentially, which branch is, takes primacy. And one side was arguing, obviously, that Congress's ability to subpoena uh, is really important. And if you don't allow that, then you basically have a presidency that cannot ever be held in check or cannot ever be held accountable. And the president's lawyer was arguing, obviously, the opposite. It's pretty interesting that you have the Chief Justice John Roberts himself asking, well, if you can't subpoena, then how can you actually investigate? Because the argument was, well, you can investigate, but we're just saying you can't subpoena your, on your honors. And the Chief Justice uh, said, yeah, but if you can't subpoena, that doesn't really seem like you're actually able to investigate. So I thought that was fascinating and a, a really important window into um, watching our democracy at work. So that I thought was amazing. Uh, my wax off this week is about the topic that we touched on a minute ago, which is contact tracing. So we have not heard word one in California about um, a little bit about testing, but 0.0% about contact tracing, both of which are absolutely critical if we're ever going to be able to end the stay-at-home order, leave our homes, and take up some semblance of real life, going back to school, opening up our businesses, and going about our daily lives as we have before, even with modifications, because we do all understand that there will be modifications, and we're not going to go back to what we had in 2019, let's just say. So it turns out that our terrific reporter, Clara Chan, found that there are 500 contact tracers who are being trained this week up in the, up in the Bay Area, who are supposed to be deployed next week, and they're going for another 2,000 shortly thereafter, with the first goal of getting 10,000 total for the state. Here's what I want to tell you. There, there is no timeline, there are no dates, there are no any specifics that 
that our reporter was able to get from the public health official she interviewed, which was several, and you haven't heard it at all discussed on the uh, governor's daily press briefings, which go in which he sort of crowed about this milestone of having hit a million tests for the state of California, which is nice, but kind of meaningless unless it's put into a chronological context, unless it's put into a geographical context, and unless you can communicate to the residents of the state where those tests are happening and what they reveal about where infection is happening and where you might want to steer clear of if you are looking to leave your house, go do go about your life, and then steer clear of places that are known infectious areas. So the reality is, apparently contact tracing is underway. It's not happening quickly. It's there, we're not getting specifics about when when it might happen. And most tragically for me, there does not seem to be a technological component that would allow all of us residents to access that information, for example, in an app, oh, I don't know, on a phone, I don't know if there were a way to kind of track that information and serve it up to the public. Yeah, people are worried, I think, about privacy when it comes to those apps, but I think, you know, I think it would be nice if, you gotta think about the greater good, I think, in those cases. And maybe well, I think we could think more... about that issue, and I think it's a very real issue, uh, but that doesn't mean that it can't be First of all, you can always choose not to download the app, number one, if you don't want it, if there were such a hypothetical, fantastical app that existed to provide this critical life-saving information. And secondly, I'm sure that is an issue that could be addressed either technologically or um, with legislation if that, you know, as as, as a legitimate concern. So anyway, all right, Daniel, your wax on wax off what is it yes um i'm gonna recommend i'm sure every sports fan is already watching the last dance the michael jordan chicago bulls documentary every week on espn it's funny because they advertise this as having this never before seen footage from you know 20 plus years ago of jordan and the bulls in their final you know run together to win the sixth title but it's been the recent interviews that have been way more interesting hearing michael talk about everything after the fact and what he was thinking and how he reflects on things, how he thinks differently now versus then, which isn't much, actually. He's pretty resigned. Um, Scotty Pippen, just everyone. It's been really fascinating. It's one of those things where everyone talked about how good it was, and it's actually that good. Um, but my wax off this week is kind of the same thing, which is social media, Twitter in specific, when The Last Dance is on every Sunday night, is literally just every single sports writer and every single sports website just tweeting about The Last Dance for two hours straight. I am someone who, I am a little Twitter obsessed. I get a lot of news from Twitter. I follow a wide variety of things. But for those two hours, you could tweet about anything and I wouldn't see it because it's just Last Dance, Last Dance. Everyone has to throw out a GIF, a quote, an opinion, a story. It's just ruined Twitter for me on Sunday night. So I wish people, I'm, gl- I'm kind of glad it's over after this week because I can get Twitter back on Sundays because it just gets bombarded because no one else has anything to, else to tweet about. And if you're in the world of sports, like there's nothing else going on. So I get it, but like, Otis, you know, stuff that, that that's not going to be about the last dance. Yeah, no, that, but Sunday nights, it probably would be who I don't, I know. Maybe Clarence <laughs> Thomas has been live tweeting it too. We probably, it's just dominate. All right. That concludes this week's. Wax on, wax off. When we come back, we'll discuss the possibility of Amazon buying AMC theaters and just how the pandemic has thrown a wrench in one of TV's biggest weeks of the year. Stick around. (music) 
So with movie theater chains in dire straits during this pandemic, it was really only a matter of time until rumors of a big sale surfaced. And sure enough, this week it was reported that Amazon has had discussions about purchasing AMC Theaters, the world's largest theater chain. But is this a smart move? Here to discuss it are the raps Trey Williams and Bruce Nash, the box office analyst and the founder of TheNumbers.com. So Bruce, let me start with you. What do you think about this? Is this a good move? Bad move? Good for Amazon? Good for good for, good for AMC? All of the above. Who, who could it be good for? Well, I, I think the, the first thing to say is I, I think there's a lot of doubt about whether these discussions really took place. So I, I think for the purposes of this discussion, you know, maybe we assume that, that they did. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe we're just oh, wait, doing... go, go back to that a second. Why do you say there's a lot of doubt about whether the discussions took place? Well, there was there was a single report that, that both parties are either not confirming or uh, not commenting on. Um, and, 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 and Trey, we've not confirmed it either, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, out we've reached out to both sides also. Um, and, um, you know, Amazon... We don't comment on speculation is what they called it. Um, and AMC, since they've furloughed, you know, all of their corporate employees, um, no, no one has gotten back. So, <laughs> yeah, neither side at this point, you know, have um, confirmed that the talks happened. Or, but, and they or also denied. haven't denied. Or, or denied. Or, de- or denied. All right. All right. So that, that's the state of play in terms of reporting. Okay, Bruce, back to you. Yeah, yeah. And there's even talk that they may have been talking to AMC networks rather than AMC. I saw that report. That was that's wild. Not, okay, I think that's really dumb. That's just stupid. Oh, AMC Networks is not for sale. That's owned by a, it's a That private, makes even less sense. Yeah, it's not a private company. It's owned by a wealthy family that is uh, not interested in selling as far as yeah, far as Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so, so also, I, I think... They're also a company that doesn't have $5 billion in debt, not to mention, but in any event. Right, right. Onward. Uh, go on. Yes. And so, you know, even if we're playing this game for fun, um, you you know, I, th- I think it's still an interesting question because, as you say, the, the theaters are obviously under tremendous pressure right now. Um, no revenue coming in. They've still got rent to pay, even if they're able to follow a lot of people. Uh, and the, the obvious people to come in and purchase is a, uh, you know, somebody who's in the distribution game, in the production game, and has content that they want to get into theaters um, and has the cash to, to do it. And Amazon kind of fits. Um, all of those uh, criteria. So, um, you know, I think I think we can sort of get into more detail on on why Amazon would want to do it. But I think if you are looking for a potential partner, you know, a- Amazon or, or one of the major studios is probably, you know, a, a, a potential um, partner for that. Um, so, um, I don't think it's a crazy idea. Um, well, it, it's definitely not a crazy idea, if only in the sense that in, in all the reporting that we've been doing as, as a team since the pandemic started and talking about the shutdown of all theaters with zero revenue coming in, it's come up in every conversation with every analyst right. and in the papers that they're putting out, which is that this that a restructuring of the theatrical distribution ecosystem might have to happen. So, Trey, let me just turn to you for a second. It tells why... AMC is the most likely target for uh, some kind of takeover. Yeah, I mean, they're the most, um, quote unquote, in trouble. Uh, They have massive amounts of debt um, on 
on on the books and five billion dollars, right? Five, yeah, right? yes, uh, somewhere around five billion dollars. Um, and they were in they were kind of in uh, a weird situation even before the pandemic. You know that debt was there before all this happened, and now the uh, theaters are closed down and they have no revenue coming in. Uh, it makes it even worse for them. Um, they were at one point um, had a major investment from uh, Wanda, um, which they've kind of taken a step back. Uh, Wanda Group has um, not in terms of the investment, but in terms of um, you know continuing to offer like financing and all that stuff. Um, and You're saying they, this is the Chinese, the, the right, Chinese right, 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 right. And since then, they've turned to um, Silver Lake Partners, private equity. Um, and so they're relying heavily on them, but, um, the debt and the, the credit rating for AMC, um, as you mentioned, Sharon, like there's been so much talk about, you know, will they, uh, do they need to file for bankruptcy, go into a restructuring? How can they find more financing after this? Um, will they need to sell off assets, uh, the whole, uh, company, um, I mean, I don't think anything there, there, there's something else that happened, right? Which is that Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC Theaters, got got kind of got into a pissing match with Universal uh, when Universal when Jeff Shell of Universal had when they had their earnings, and he said, "We're going to be moving forward with the you know essentially streaming options in addition to theatrical," and Adam Aaron essentially banned Universal movies from his theaters isn't that yeah. right yeah i mean amc has always been kind of a petty queen um i guess that comes from benefit of being the largest uh, theater chain but i mean even before the universe before the universal uh scuffle um when movie pass burst onto the scene they you know really publicly you know got into it with um with and about movie pass Mm-hmm. Um, so they're always, you know, going above and beyond in somewhat of a public way to defend the theatrical um, model and, you know, theatrical windows. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, yeah, the universal thing also is. I mean, they have to they have to protect, you know, what is uh, kind of seemingly shrinking. So Bruce, what what uh, Daniel? I'll bounce to you in one second. Uh, but Bruce, I was going to ask you, how, what would it look like if Amazon? owned the biggest theater chain in the United States? Well, I think, I think for Amazon's uh, perspective, there, there's, a, there's a few things that they might gain out of doing this. Um, one is obviously they have, you know, their whole Amazon Prime brand, which is, uh, you know, potentially a pretty good fit for, um, a, you know, a movie theater loyalty program where you're getting discounted tickets, um, you know, perhaps they, you, you merge it with AMC's existing program um, and you have some synergy, you know, just in terms of branding and, and you know, linking up um, ev- everything in, in with your existing Amazon Prime brand. Uh, I think that you, from a theatrical distribution perspective, obviously the, the, the thing that uh, is the contention point between AMC and Universal is is the theatrical window, where the theaters want to have the films exclusively for a period of 60 days or 90 days or whatever in order to uh, maximize theatrical revenue. And Amazon doesn't necessarily care so much about that and might be able to, to make a case that, well, this 
for some films, they can you know shrink that right down, and and they don't mind if they're cannibalizing the theatrical business because it's their own business, and they can make a decision about what's best for an individual film, right? Um, to to in order to maximize revenue for the film, or to you know brand it in a particular way, and to you know maximize the chance of winning an Oscar, perhaps. Um, you know, there, so so there's there's a lot I think within that that you can unpack in terms of the marketing of certain types of, of film. Uh, and then the third thing I think that the, we, we saw, you know, six months ago, I think now, Amazon sort of pulled back from theatrical distribution a little bit. Um, they'd been out of the streamers, the ones who were most pro going to theaters, uh, you know, maintaining the window. And then the aeronauts, they decided, well, actually, you know, this is an expensive movie. It's an expensive thing to market, but we're not going to put it in theaters because uh, and, and, and by the way, and I, I, I saw the aeronauts uh, on a big screen, big screen at the Toronto Film Festival, and it's magnificent. And and that movie sunk without a trace because they did not put it in theaters. So yeah, yeah, I don't think it was even it was a shame. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was it was a loss. And I, I I think that you know if if Amazon owned a theater chain, they might have said, well, we can make this, you know, a big prestige release for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then ha have it on Amazon Prime at Christmas um, and, you know, get two bites of the cherry, you know, right, right there in two different environments for that film. And obviously you can't do that if you're honoring the, the theatrical uh, window. So so I, I think that that, you know, plays into it as well. But the, the other thing with theatrical releases, um, you know, Amazon loves to get data on what people are buying, you know, how they can sell, you know, other things based on, um, on what what something has someone has purchased, and if they're getting them, you know, a big chunk of revenue for a film on the theatrical side, they don't get any of that data. You know, that's all proprietary information for the for AMC, for example. They know, you know, which of their their customers are coming to see which films, and they're not really sharing that, and certainly don't have to share that with um, with the distributors. So, you know, I think that there may be some argument there that, that Amazon can sort of complete the picture of, of their relationship um, with a particular mm -hmm. client to say, a customer to say, this person really loved the aeronauts, maybe there's, you know, some TV shows that they, they might like on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. All right, so if it's interesting or debatable whether or not this makes a lot of sense for Amazon, I'm wondering, Bruce, is there a particular company, a studio, maybe a different streamer that you think it makes the most sense for to pry, to get into this game? Yeah, well, I think, so one of the other things that that um, is, you know, there's certainly rumors about, and there's, you know, been indications we may change, is, is the consent decree that, that was put into place right. in the 1950s, which said that the studios could no longer own movie theaters. Um, and I think that if it's decided that that, you know, it's appropriate to, to relax that at this point, um, then all of the studios have some, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely, you know, potential synergies for them, maybe not to own a you know, massive chain, but certainly, you know, to have the movie theater where they can do the premiere, where they, they can, you know, say, you know, come to the Disney theater in New York City and see, you know, the Lion King and, you know, and we'll tie this in with all of the other stuff. Um, that, that that we can do around the film. So any I, I, of the I studios, I think, is is potential, but whether it makes sense to you know have three thousand theaters across the country, I think that's another question. Let's clarify the consent decree for our listeners as well. I mean, that goes back to it was called the Paramount Decree, I think, uh, 
in at some point. This goes back to the 40s or the 50s. Uh, I need to. I, we need to check exactly the date, but yeah. but essentially, it's it's a very antiquated rule that was essentially an anti-monopoly measure, right? So um, I was under the impression this is all but uh, moot at this point, but it has to be formally uh, dissolved. Is that the? Is that? I, 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 Trey or Bruce, I'm not sure who wants to weigh in on that. <laughs> Bruce is the expert. <laughs> uh, so I I. I, I think it, 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 you know, it could come down to somebody just breaking it and saying, you know, so take a ah. report. Um, oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, you, clearly the Justice Department can say, you know, we're not going to enforce this anymore um, and, and remove it from, from the books. But it, it can also be, uh, you know, the case that somebody can say, well, you know, we're not doing it in quite the way that we, you know, that the, you know, law says, and then, you know, you challenge it in court or, or you know, the, no, nobody enforces it in, in reality any, mm. any longer. Yeah, last year the DOJ moved to um, have it stricken or dismissed or to have it not be um, uh, in, in effect anymore, um, which is when all these conversations picked up. Um, at this point, I don't know where that stands, um, but it seems like it's their um, notion to sort of... <laughs> To, to to get rid of it. All right, my cat has come to say hi to uh, Daniel's cat. Yeah, I've been I, for people who are just listening and not watching. I've been fighting my cat throughout this entire segment. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting because you know, to me, I've made this comparison before. It feels like the idea that you know all these different companies launch their own streaming platforms because they wanted to control every aspect of distribution. Why are you letting Netflix profit off of your show if you're NBC Universal or? or Warner's or any of these other companies are now, they just launch their own. So if you're Disney, you know, the idea of owning a, a, a theater chain where you can not only launch new movies, but like the idea of, you know, going to Disney World and maybe you could see any Disney movie at a theater there of all time, seems like it would be a huge thing. And same thing with Amazon. Like you pointed out the idea of them being able to own all this data, but also, you know, I could see them turning movie theaters into like, part retail stores maybe you see a star wars movie and then there's a star wars shop next door where you're purchasing all this stuff you're buying mugs and t-shirts and the book and all these different things i think there's a lot of room for them to really own that space mm -hmm. yeah it feels like it makes sense trey, trey what were you say? well yeah i was just gonna say not to mention the fact that for some of these big movies theatrical for all of its, you know, ups and downs and um, problems that it's been through, is still one of the best ways to recoup, you know, the money that you've uh, spent producing it, uh, marketing it, um, and getting it out to the masses. I mean, if Disney would never just put, you know, Avengers Endgame on Disney Plus without you know, putting it in theaters and missing out on that $2.8 billion worldwide um, box office. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think if Amazon is going to continue to go more and more into um, theatrical production uh, or film production for, you know, big movies, that it, uh, it could be something that makes sense. I, I, yeah, the two companies that I like for this really are Amazon and Disney. Uh, Disney because sure. it knows how to eventize everything and w would have all of these 
merchandising tie-ins um, and probably live tie-ins. And Amazon, be, for, the, for the reasons that Bruce discussed before, the thing is, though, Amazon's not really making very many movies. AMC has a lot of uh, screens. So what the heck are they going to put on there? They would yeah. certainly have to license that space out to other uh, product from films from other uh, distributors. When we, when we talked about this with uh, the AMC Universal fight, uh, Tom Guy, our executive editor, brought up the point, you know, does Amazon start charging more to other studios for their movies to, to go on the screens? Like, do they start taking a higher cut because suddenly they become one of the biggest names in town? Certainly right. a possibility. There's there's a lot there, there's a lot of permutations that I think are implicit in a in a producer and distributor also owning all of theatrical one the biggest theatrical distribution, but I mean Bruce, don't you think that this is perhaps the best way to save theatrical distribution because it's kind of on a knife's edge right now. Well, I I think that it, that's a great point that that if you're running a theater, you have to find a way of generating revenue at this point. Um, and even if you, you know, expect theatres to come back into business, and we've seen it in some international territories already, even if theatres are open, the revenue is dramatically down now from, from where it was six months ago. Um, and that's going to take a long time to come back. I think whatever happens, you know, we, we have to be realistic about that. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think that, Somebody is going to, you know, have to get creative, um, and um, you know, to the point that Trey made, I, I, if if you're Amazon and you can be selling DVDs and T-shirts and posters and all of that stuff, and and doing that in a way that is not, you know, a big risk to you because you know you're going to sell those DVDs anyway, even if it's not to people in the theatre. You know, you can, you know, maybe you set up a Amazon pickup point in the lobby. You know, what, whatever it may be. But you have to find something that's going to be incremental, I think, over the traditional theatrical business. And um, clearly, you've got to get creative um, about doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to think that maybe a, a, a cat petting um, <laughs> inside the theatrical experience might be something good. <laughs> Thank you uh, for listening to us because we've been invaded by the cats of the, uh, they're taking over. Uh, so thank you so much. Thanks, Trey. Thanks, Bruce Nash, uh, for joining us for this important conversation. We're, we're absolutely going to be following this week by week. Uh, and if you're listening, the, way, the best way for you to follow it day by day is to check out Rap Pro, our members only offering from the rap and really an essential news source for anybody who's in the entertainment business or wants to be. Uh, Rap Pro was designed specifically for Hollywood insiders who want to stay on top of the business of movies, TV, streaming, and gaming, and it includes all kinds of exclusive access that are not available anywhere else. So for more information and to subscribe to Rap Pro, visit therap.com slash join. This should have been a big week for television. The upfronts are when networks unveil their fall schedule and rake in big advertising dollars. Instead, mostly radio silence and a few press releases. The fall TV season is still a big mystery, and this summer, which I believe is just around the corner, right? I don't pay attention to months or days anymore. Uh, it's shaping up to be a season with a lot of reruns. Here to discuss the TV landscape are the raps Tim Basinger and Jenny Moss. Thanks for joining us, guys. Hi. Hey. 
All right, Tim, let's talk uh, some money first. You know, this is a big sales week for television usually. Um, what does the uncertainty about the fall season mean for advertisers and how they go about spending their money? Uh, well, it means it's going to be a significantly uh, less robust upfront uh, than it usually is. Usually around this time, advertisers are seeing trailers for all the new fall shows and they're starting their conversations about which ones they want to make bets on. Um, and then that usually picks up over the next month. And then by July, you usually see a lot of the upfront business being done. But that's not going to happen. Um, no one really knows when it's going to start. It could start next month, but it's definitely not going to be done by July. It's going to go longer. I've heard some ad sales executives tell me they think only half their normal advertisers are even ready to make commitments because some of them are figuring out their own business. You have whole uh, categories like travel, tourism, even movie studios that just don't know what they're going to spend money on, if they're going to spend money. So it's, it's really a lot of uncertainty right now. How much money are we talking about? Uh, well, it's usually around $20 billion is Oh, that's it? In, yeah, just, you know, uh, chump change, what's in Bob Iger's uh, couch. Um, <laughs> it's usually, but the difference is these are just commitments, not necessarily sales. So it's no real money's being transacted yet. It's more of you know, you make commitments, but then what usually happens is shows fail, shows get canceled early, do poorly, so they give make goods in the spring. Um, but yeah, you'll see a lot less uh, bets being made uh, just because no one really knows what fall shows they're going to get. Um, we know a little bit about what's going to happen this fall, but it's mostly going to be acquired programming and shows that were already in the can, not really anything new until the spring or until mid-season. So, Jenny, who so far has announced their fall schedules? Usually most of the networks would be done, but it's only been a couple, right? Right. So Fox did right on time um, on Monday. That's when they normally would have. They didn't have their usual call to discuss it, and they didn't have their upfront, um, but they did get their schedule out. And what we saw in that schedule um, was that they're going to have the mass Singer. They're going to have it hell or, uh, come hell or high water. They're going to make that work. Uh, they want to start production in August to make sure that happens. But for the most part, like Tim said, they're shoving stuff um, to the winter. Uh, they're also filling the time that they would have used with they had two shows in the can already ready to go. Uh, John Flattery's Next and Pink Trial's Filthy Rich. So those scripted shows were completed and those are going to air. And then they also have acquired LA's Finest. And we saw the CW release their slate today and they're pushing all of their usual fall staples to mid-season um, with the exception of Supernatural, which they're going to make that happen. That's their priority um, to finish the final two episodes of that and to air what we didn't get to see this spring of the final season of Supernatural. And they're padding their schedule with a lot of acquisitions too and pushing a lot of stuff that was supposed to air during the summer to the fall. So that's what we're seeing right now, but we only have Fox and CW. So we'll see if that continues to be a trend for the other networks, a lot of acquisitions and a lot of shoving things that you can't foresee when production will start again to the winter. What about what about renewals? I mean, isn't there a lot of renewals of uh, shows that might have been otherwise canceled? That was one of the things that that we were told is going to happen. So we're still kind of waiting to see. Not all those decisions have been made. Um, CBS has cleared their slate completely uh, with cancellations and renewals. But that pretty much actually went, Tim, uh, I think that went exactly how we thought it was going to go with them in terms of what their shows were that were on the bubble and weren't on the yeah, bubble. They pretty much yeah. renewed everything. Yeah. I think there was a couple freshman shows like Tommy and 
there's uh, broke yeah. that they canceled, but they basically are bringing everything back. And they're the ones that are acting the most like it's business as usual. They're gonna unveil their fall schedule next week. Um, they, you know, they ordered three new series. Uh, I would imagine those will not be slated until mid-season, but they're the ones acting the most like nothing is really changing too much. And I'll be interested to see what their fall looks like. Cause right now between CW and Fox, like Jenny said, it's mostly stuff that's already filmed or has aired on a streaming service before that's already in the can that so they can give because uh, CW had uh, Mark Pedowitz said this morning that he basically wants to give their shows and their studios the time to restart production. They don't know when that's going to be. Um, so they're giving them the time so they can wait till midseason, hopefully. And then they're having some sort of midseason, uh, which might mean like April. I don't know. <laughs> Well, can, can you clarify for us sort of what this now means when you're having um, traditional television networks at companies that almost all of them have streaming alternatives or partner or sister divisions or, you know, that are streamers. So CBS has CBS All Access, for example. So they have a lot of traditional shows that on the broadcast. How, how do those decisions play and are, are, they, are they leveraging that at all to give them either more uh, flexibility in creating their schedule or uh, having a, I don't know, some kind of backstop or another, another distribution system that might give, give them a different, a different, different kind of options? Yeah, the CW seems like they're doing that because they picked up the one and only season of Swamp Thing, which aired on DC Universe, which is, you know, the CW is owned by Viacom CBS and uh, Warner Media through AT&T. So, you know, DC Universe is a Warner Media streaming service. So they picked up the one season of Swamp Thing. They picked up two seasons of Tell Me a Story, which aired on CBS All Access. Um, those shows are shows that are not continuing on those respective streaming services. So they're just kind of picking up old programming and just putting it on a network So because it's probably better than a repeat. Um, I would not be shocked if CBS, if CBS, the network, doesn't probably air another season of uh, The Good Fight. They've done that before um, to try to kind of get that a little Emmy love. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them do the same thing and air some other CBS All Access uh, shows, like some back seasons, just so they have programming, which it seems like that's what they're doing. I mean, Fox went a little bit different and they cut a deal with Sony to air the first season of LA's Finest, um, but Fox doesn't have a streaming service to pull from. Um, but it seems like that's kind of what people, what networks are banking on right now is what can they pick up that's either aired in another country on other streaming service, another platform that maybe didn't air to a broadcast audience that will seem kind of new, even if it's not totally new. Yeah. And the other thing that's creating big holes that these broadcast networks have to fill is there's no live sports. So the ABC would have had the NBA playoffs going on right now. Soon we're going to have Monday night football, Sunday night football. It seems like they have, you know, a lot of holes to fill and it seems like they're picking from, you know, wherever they can find content at this point, right? You're not a fan of Korean baseball? I have not jumped on the Korean baseball bandwagon yet. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said Corona baseball. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, ESPN is airing. Uh, I don't even know what league it is. KBO they league. Had to KBO. 10, 10 um, so I know we talked a little bit. We're talking broadcast networks, but Peacock also unveiled um, their schedule today and i personally found that it was a little light they didn't specifically they, they didn't specifically say that certain shows were delayed but clearly you know this wasn't the full slate that they expected 
but at least they have all this legacy content to pull from, right, Jenny? Yes, that's true. I mean, first and foremost, they were already hit really hard when the Olympics, um, that whole plan changed. They had tied their launch to that. So they knew already that was going to be hard. But in terms of originals, yeah, the same as HBO Max. Um, everyone had to shut down. So these big streaming services that were launching with originals, but huge IPs and libraries, that's mainly, you know, where they have that. You know, HBO Max has friends. Um, Peacock doesn't have the office yet, but it will next year. Uh, they have Parks and Rec. They're going to have 30 Rock. They have huge libraries. They have Universal movies. They have DreamWorks movies. Um, so, yeah, the the original series and movies that we saw today, which I think it was like eight total, that's thin. And they obviously would have wanted to launch with more. But they've made it very clear that that's not what they're going to be able to do right now. They're looking at this the way they can um, and banking on the fact they'll be able to bring the ones they're excited about uh, by the end of the year or by early next year. Um, so they they prepared for this and I guess are accepting it. And they also have libraries, like I said. So even though it seems like that launch slate is small, that's not everything that's on Peacock. So I don't think that's what they're looking at at the moment. It's not like they had to stack it um, like Apple. Apple doesn't have a library and they didn't intend to have a library when they launched. Um, they only have their originals, but Peacock doesn't have to just give you what you saw in that list today. They have everything else that's already there. I want to circle back for a second and ask about the advertising question where we started with TV upfronts. If in fact these uh, this $20 billion market goes down to half of what it was and we, we just don't, what, what is the impact on these, on these companies? Number one. And number two, What's the what's the prospect for this all of this money coming back in a year from now? What if all this money just goes to Google and Facebook and doesn't come back? Well, it's I mean, it basically leaves everything in a state of uncertainty. You know, I think most media buyers and ad sales execs that I've talked to, they will come out and say, yeah, we think the upfront's gonna be less than it usually is, which is just a percentage of the total ads that, that gets spent. And it's like, it's like 60% of it, of their, it's, six, it's usually about 60 to 70% right. of their budgets go during okay. the upfront. So you'll mm -hmm. see, I don't know, 40% this year, 30%. I don't know what it is. And then, but you'll see more of it get spent on the scatter market, which is when, which is basically buying ads closer to when a show or an event airs, which typically are more expensive. So networks may actually, networks like scatter because they can charge more where, where media buyers like placing their clients money early. Cause it's usually cheaper because you buy it in bulk. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not like the money's not going to be spent. It's more of it's going to be spent differently at different times. The biggest thing will be when these businesses, like if you're an airline or even if you're a movie studio or you're a tourism company, you're going to have less money to spend just because your business is going kind of down the tubes right now. Um, so there might be a little less demand just because companies just don't have the budgets they used to have because everybody's being hit economically by this. I mean, that's, that, that seems evident to me that that is going to happen, that the overall advertising number this year is going to be lower. Isn't the real question, though, will it be able to bounce back in the future? Because the business can weather it for, for a year or half the year, but really it, you'd be looking at next year and saying, okay, we hope that people don't get comfortable not spending mar their marketing dollars. Yeah, right now everybody seems obviously, they're, they're putting forth a good face that they think it'll rebound when this is all hopefully past us. But no one really, like most things with this, no one can ever say for certain. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Uh, Jenny and Tim, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. And that is it for this week's episode of The Wrap-Up, our weekly podcast. Get it? So many cats this week. Thank you to all our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you next week.